anyone sane looking at China now admits that zero COVID is just a pipe dream. But Ardern absolutely pursued that policy and pursued it hard. And it did mean, uh, by the way, the most draconian local lockdowns as well. Auckland, the main city, was brutally locked down for months on end. And their lockdowns, Brennan, were Chinese level. But focus in New Zealand was on the border. So that meant you could be dying of cancer. You were not allowed back to New Zealand. Your partner could be about to die from a terrible illness. You were not allowed to go back to New Zealand. Your treatment was inhumane. Hello and welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Dan Wooten. Dan, welcome to the show. Hello, Brendan. I'm very happy to be here. And it's funny, isn't it? Because usually I'm asking you the questions on my show on GB News. So I guess this is going to be a little bit weird for me. It's a bit of a turnaround, but I'm really pleased we're doing this. We've wanted you on the show for a very long time. There are so many issues I want to talk to you about from your writing, your broadcasting. But I want to kick off with something very close to your heart, which is New Zealand. You are from New Zealand and you have written and spoken quite a lot over the past two years about New Zealand's zero COVID regime, which many people around the world admire and you don't so much. Um, And let's kick off with a a news report I read uh, last week, uh, a few days before we're recording this, which is one of the most depressing things I've read for a long time, which says that people in New Zealand are being asked to recommit to pandemic measures because there's been another spike in cases and in deaths. So just give us an outline on what has been happening in New Zealand during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing has been mind-blowing to me. And quite difficult, I'm going to be honest. And for a long time, Mm. I was relatively quiet about it because my background is an interesting one. Yes, I was born in New Zealand and my mum, my dad and my sister live in New Zealand, but I'm a dual citizen. I'm a dual British and New Zealand citizen. My parents were both born here or my dad was born on a British army base in Malta. My mum was born in Essex. My dad's family are all from South Shields. So I very much have always felt like I'm a British New Zealander. And I made a decision when I was 21 years old to move to the UK. I've been here ever since. And I did that, obviously, based on an understanding that I was always going to be able to travel between the two countries to Mm. see my family. And not being able to do that, I guess, has become a living nightmare to me, really. So I will put it out there. I'm very personally invested in this story because it had huge personal repercussions on me. It had huge personal repercussions on people who are very close to me in my life, including good friends who were locked up in Jacinda Ardern's COVID prisons in New Zealand as their mother literally died down the road and they were unable to be released. So, so, for a long time, I kept my fury about this mm. uh, sort of under wraps because I felt like it was something that was about me, really. And it was because of I was in this unique position. I, I have these two homes and maybe other people don't really care about that. But obviously, as the pandemic went on and Jacinda Ardern was put on this pedestal as the international hero of tackling COVID, I got increasingly angry because the inevitable was always going to come to New Zealand, Brendan. And of course, Mm. that has now happened and they are not coping. 
with COVID. That's the first thing because they have very little immunity in the population. And then the second thing is, and this is something that just isn't spoken about, the economy has been completely destroyed. Jacinda Ardern's socialist dream has been completely destroyed because there's no one to do the jobs. And I've just got back from New Zealand, actually. I went for the first time uh, to, to visit my parents and to meet my new niece. And obviously it was incredible to be back. But it was also so shocking to me to see New Zealand in a post-COVID world. And especially because obviously I'm so into the media and I look very closely at what the media are doing. And to see the conspiracy of silence around COVID lockdowns and Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, Brennan, I mean, this is a country that now treats their prime minister as if she's a celebrity, (laughs) not as if she's a politician who should be scrutinized, but as if she is a popular, famous celebrity like Kim Kardashian or something. So Mm. that is a very long answer to paint you a bit of a picture about why I'm so passionate about this topic. That's a a really useful answer and gives us a lot to chew on and to think about. And I want to come back to the question of Jacinda Ardern and the worship of her, which I find incredibly creepy. But just sticking with what you've outlined there for a moment, I think people sometimes forget how inhumane a lot of the COVID policies were, and especially zero COVID policies of the kind that we saw in New Zealand and in Australia as well. So you are, as you've just described, you are a citizen of New Zealand, you're a dual citizen of New Zealand and the the UK, and yet you were prevented from going to your home country, from the country of which you are a citizen. And that is fairly unprecedented in modern times, where a country would lock out not only foreigners or aspiring migrants, but their own citizens. And then, of course, there was a lottery system where some people were allowed back eventually. When they did get to New Zealand, they were often locked up, as you describe it. How has that gone down amongst ordinary New Zealanders, not the ones who are uh, bewitched by Jacinda Ardern, but ordinary New Zealanders who might have family overseas, who might be in a similar position to you or to your family. How has that gone down? Are people shocked by it or have they allowed it to wash over them because the pandemic was uh, presented to us as this epoch-defining, terrifying moment? I think increasingly New Zealanders are waking up and certainly Mm. there is a huge amount of anger at the divisive policies that Ardern has inflicted across the country. But that isn't reflected in the mainstream media in New Zealand. If if you watch and look at the media in New Zealand, you would think that 90% of the country agree with her policies. And when it comes to the specific cruelties, I am absolutely astonished at the lack of international scrutiny, Brendan. I mean, as you say... Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was breaking international law. If you have a New Zealand passport, it says on the opening page of that passport that you have a right to gain entry to your country at all times. Since then, and actually she travelled recently to New Zealand to, sorry, from New Zealand to the UK to do a bit of puff piece PR with the likes of Lorraine Kelly, where she pretended that New Zealand had never been shut down to its citizens. That is a lie, Brendan. I mean, this lottery system was honestly like the Hunger Games. You could be in a country like Britain living illegally and you were not allowed back to enter New Zealand. You could be dying of cancer. You were not allowed back to New Zealand. Your 
partner could be about to die from a terrible illness. You were not allowed to go back to New Zealand. And it resulted, and I think really the, the woman who deserves a lot of credit is a, is a lady called Charlotte Ballas, very um, accomplished journalist for Al Jazeera internationally previously. And finally, she put this disgusting predicament in the international headlines when she revealed mm. that she had had to seek refuge in Afghanistan because yeah. she was pregnant. She was unable to stay in the Middle East where she was being employed by Al Jazeera because she was a pregnant woman out of wedlock. So, well, she couldn't go back to New Zealand. So the Taliban allowed her temporary refuge in Afghanistan. <laughs> I think finally that woke people up to yeah. the absolute madness of this policy. And since then, there's been a really incredible group called Grounded Kiwis that have actually taken the New Zealand government to court and they have in part won that case. And that's just one of many legal challenges Ardern's facing. She also uh, lost a case about vaccine passports and uh, the police, you know, police officers in New Zealand losing their job because they hadn't been vaccinated. But fundamentally, no, they're just like Trudeau, just like Macron, there has been so little scrutiny on our dirt. And that is where I feel so let down by my profession, because it's really only the media that was ever going to shine a light on this. And one of the things that they also haven't shone a light on, which relates very closely to Jacinda Ardern, is the whole idea of zero COVID. Because the reason that um, New Zealand was able to behave in such an incredibly inhumane way to its own people, both those who were in New Zealand and were severely locked down for long periods of time and its citizens outside of New Zealand who were prevented from coming home. It behaved like that because it bought into the zero COVID cult. The idea that the only way to tackle this pandemic was to close your borders, shut down everything at a moment's notice if there was even a single case of COVID and really behave in this incredibly severe way to prevent the pandemic from ever gaining a foothold. Uh, Australia did the same thing and Australia ended up with some incredibly inhumane policies as well. I remember when around 9,000 Australian citizens were stranded in India because uh, the government in Australia banned people from India, including its own citizens, from coming back to Australia. And they could have been uh, imprisoned for five years simply for trying to get to their home country. Really extraordinary stuff, which I think people sometimes forget. But doesn't this all point to how psychotic the policy of zero COVID was, the notion that every aspect of life could be sacrificed to the aim of ensuring that this uh, disease never spread? And in that sense, there are answers, there are questions to ask of some experts in the UK as well, isn't there? Because zero COVID was one of their favourite ideas, but thankfully we never actually pursued it. Oh, absolutely. The likes of Devi Truder, you know, who was uh, one of the main COVID advisors to Nicola Sturgeon, the SNP. Remember at one point, Sturgeon genuinely believed that Scotland was going to become a haven of zero COVID. And in the end, she blamed the pesky Englishman for bringing COVID <laughs> in. I mean, look, it's ludicrous. It's completely ludicrous. Everyone now admits, or anyone sane looking at China now admits that zero COVID is just a pipe dream. But she in terms in Ardern absolutely pursued that policy and pursued it hard. 
And it did mean, uh, by the way, the most draconian local lockdowns as well. So everyone paints this picture of New Zealand being this open haven. Well, that's not true. Auckland, the main city, was brutally locked down for months on end. And their lockdowns, Brendan, were Chinese level. Non-essential retail was shut. Supermarkets, you had to get uh, special access to go at certain hours. You couldn't go to a drive through McDonald's. The lockdowns in New Zealand were very tough. But the focus in New Zealand was on the border. It was all about the border. So that meant that the arrivals into the country were limited to a tiny trickle. And then once you were allowed back into your own country, something I would never have put myself through, by the way, your treatment was inhumane. I mean, the United Nations actually found that one of the government quarantine facilities in New Zealand actually breached uh, human rights for prisoners in a jail. That's how bad it was. I mean, and it really is worth reflecting on this stuff because one of the things that worries me about the current period is that we're moving on rather too swiftly from the whole lockdown idea and the lockdown experience and it it seems that lots of people don't want to have a reckoning with what governments did to their own citizens during that time and I think we do need that kind of reckoning which is why some of the stuff that you've said about New Zealand I think is incredibly important. Okay so on Jacinda Ardern herself, you've mentioned her a few times. I have always been completely baffled by the global love for Jacinda Ardern. You know, liberals around the world absolutely love her. She's like a female Trudeau. You know, she can do no wrong. She walks on water. She's this wonderful politician. Um, And during the COVID pandemic, she was held up as the perfect COVID era leader. She was protecting her people from disease. She was keeping this uh, horrible sickness out of her uh, country's borders. But what do you think is going on in relation to that worship of Ardern? Because as you say, they haven't interrogated the truth of what she did during lockdown. People haven't accounted for the fact that, of course, as anyone could have predicted, the pandemic has reached New Zealand anyway, as we always knew it would as soon as New Zealand opened up its borders. Is it that people are depressed with their own politicians and are looking for this kind of saintly figure somewhere else that they can worship. What is behind this cringing idolization of someone like Jacinda Ardern? Yeah, I think you're completely right. I mean, Jacinda Ardern is now far more popular outside of New Zealand (laughs) than she is inside of New Zealand. And actually, Brendan, she was an accidental prime minister. This is something that most people don't realise. New Zealand has a proportional system of government. That, by the way, is not something I'm opposed to. I know it's something that the two main parties here in the UK hate viciously. But actually, I think uh, the mixed member proportional system in New Zealand, uh, which is the same system that Germany has, is good, actually. It means there's more representation in Parliament. But what people forget is that the only reason Jacinda Ardern ever became Prime Minister was because she was backed by the country's populist leader, Winston Peters, who is New Zealand's equivalent to Nigel Farage. And it was a very unlikely coalition. And (laughs) Jacinda Ardern was not, when she first became Prime Minister, the leader of the biggest party in New Zealand. Then, of course, New Zealand was hit by tragedy, the uh, terrible terrorist attack in Christchurch, the White Island uh, volcano explosion, and then COVID. And the media in New Zealand became completely addicted to the fact that Jacinda 
was this international celebrity. She was in vogue. Oh, the Obamas loved her. She was she was on a pedestal of the liberal elite. And it was fascinating being back in New Zealand, Brendan, and seeing the coverage of Jacinda Ardern compared to the coverage of, say, Boris Johnson, because we know, obviously, over here, the media have been on a long-running campaign to get Boris Johnson out. Well, in New Zealand newspapers, I, I, I would go and look for critical coverage of Jacinda Ardern, and I'd, I'd open up a headline and it would say something like, Jacinda Ardern reveals her latest relatable moment on Instagram. And they would be talking about a little video that she'd made with her daughter. I mean, there is no critical coverage of this woman in New Zealand. However, the public are waking up. The economy in New Zealand is in the bin. Uh, The cost of living crisis is out of control. There is also a labour crisis because of the closed borders. And as it stands, Jacinda Ardern will be voted out at the next election in New Zealand unless she can be propped up by a surging Green Party in the proportional system. So there is a strong chance that she will go. And I think that will be a huge wake-up call, actually, to the rest of the world. Because when Jacinda Ardern came to power, Brendan, she promised to solve New Zealand's housing crisis She promised to eradicate child poverty. Child poverty is at historic levels in New Zealand, and the housing crisis is not even close to being sold. So all of this socialist dream is fast turning into a nightmare for Ardern. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. I think that's a very good description of the problem that emerges when politicians fall for their own image and, and, uh, and look for that kind of international attention and international love and social media attention rather than focusing on the job at hand, which in New Zealand's case was build more houses, lift children out of poverty, give people uh, a decent pay for, for work and all those kinds of issues that uh, people like Jacinda Ardern talk about while focusing on uh, how they are presented to the world. And that she very was a great flinty prime image. minister for Twitter, wasn't she, Brendan? She yeah. was sort of Twitter's international <laughs> prime minister. Exactly, exactly. And one of the, one of the um, failings that you highlighted there is the failing of the media. And I wanted to ask you uh, about the failing of the media over the past two years. You, you've outlined how the, the media in New Zealand just has not successfully held Jacinda Ardern to account. And uh, there was a similar dynamic here in the UK, wasn't there, in relation to 
COVID-19 and the pandemic and the question of lockdown. And one of the things that really shocked me in the whole lockdown period for however long that lasted, I, uh, you know, there were four or five lockdowns. I lost count after a while. All of them were a bit depressing. But one of the great problems was that the media class, the media elites, the traditional media weren't asking probing questions about whether this was the right policy, how long it should last if it was the right policy. Was it necessary to rescind almost all of our civil liberties? Couldn't it be done in a different kind of way? Was it really necessary to lock people in their houses all day long? None of those kind of burning questions were asked. And instead, the media was largely saying, give us more of it. Why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you locking down harder? Do you think there was a herd mentality in relation to lockdown? Is that one of the problems in the modern media, that it kind of gets caught up in these issues and then and loses the ability to think clearly about what the problems might be? Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, the British media absolutely failed the public over yeah. the course of those lockdowns. And I remember the first night of GB News, Brendan, and mm-hmm. we're talking just over a year ago now, and my show was the first regularly broadcast scheduled show the first night that the channel launched. And I started the show with a very strident monologue saying that I am convinced that lockdowns will go down as the biggest public health policy disaster in history. Mm. And there was complete outrage from the media class in this country, because They just couldn't believe it. They hadn't even really heard that before because I'd obviously been working uh, for The Sun and for talk radio. And don't get me wrong, we were very important for so over the course of lockdown, but we were absolutely in the minority in terms of standing up against so many of these completely unnecessary measures and curbs on our civil liberties. But I stand by that monologue and I went back and I looked at it actually on the first anniversary of GB News last month. And I I think it is absolutely going to prove to be true. And it's astonishing that even this Christmas, Brendan, that the media and the public health officials were in cahoots to try and get restrictions for Omicron, which even Bill Gates, even Bill (laughs) Gates now admits is far more effective than the vaccine. Absolutely. And um, one of the things I wanted to raise with you in relation to uh, the media coverage and the whole question of COVID and and lockdowns and and what has come out since then. I think there have been really, there have been two fallouts from the COVID era. The first is you've described it very well in relation to New, New Zealand, where there are lots of unresolved problems that are coming out of the lockdown experience in terms of a cost of living crisis, which has unquestionably been exacerbated by these issues. We've seen similar issues in uh, Sri Lanka, various parts of Europe. Uh, Across the world, people are starting to realise that if you shut down the economy for a long period of time, it's going to have pretty disastrous knock-on effects in terms of work, people's right to to have a job, people's ability to put food on the table to make ends meet, especially working class people and poorer people. So as you see those things happening, and there's even protests and uprisings and revolts and all sorts of things in response to this now, are you hopeful that there will be a reckoning with 
lockdown and its impact? Or do you think that the media and the political class will successfully present these issues as being just the fault of the Ukraine war, just the fault of general trends, rather than being caused by some of the man-made decisions that we took in relation to the pandemic? Sadly, the latter, Brendan, because even when they talk about lots of the consequences of lockdown, and it is specifically something caused by a lockdown, they will say it is a result of the COVID pandemic. And it's clearly not. It's clearly not. The educational consequences on our children, for example, the mental health issues in teenagers, that is nothing to do with COVID-19. Do not tell me that is to do with COVID-19. That is because you locked these young people up in their homes and terrified them for months and months on end. And you can see it, can't you now, Brendan, with the extreme push to net zero and the hysteria around the weather that we're just going to move on to the next thing. And there's absolutely no desire from the mainstream media or the political class or the establishment to go back and actually admit that they were wrong when it came to lockdown because it doesn't serve their narrative. And I've been really shocked even looking at this Tory leadership contest to find the next prime minister of the UK. And in the small opportunities that the media has had so far to question Uh, the contenders, one of whom will be the next Prime Minister of the UK, there's not a single question asked about lockdown. And I was actually speaking to a cabinet minister off the record the other day, Brennan, who was talking about Jeremy Hunt's campaign. Obviously, Jeremy Hunt no longer in the running, thank God, because we know (laughs) that he had followed a Chinese authoritarian zero COVID policy and he had proposed that the UK government should be doing the same thing. But there were there are serious concerns that, for example, if Rishi Sunak is to end up the prime minister in a cabinet that could feature the likes of Jeremy Hunt and Matt Hancock, that restrictions could be reintroduced this Christmas because of the more brutal flu season that is expected, yeah. which again, Brendan, is completely connected to the lockdowns and the fact that we have mucked up our immune systems so severely. And no one's asking questions about it. No one is asking the leaders, do you guarantee that you will not lock down the country again for anything or even for COVID? Because people just want to move on. And it's just been accepted now that lockdowns are a part of the public health playbook. Well, they never were. They never were part of our pandemic preparedness strategy before February 2020. So why should they just be accepted now? I think it is an absolute scandal. Yeah. And I think one of the key problems in relation to all of this is this addiction to fear that the establishment seems to have. So they whipped up a politics of fear in relation to COVID-19. And that's not me saying that COVID-19 was fake or, or not something that we needed to act against. But to do so through the politics of fear, through terrorizing your population, is always a problem because it means that you make people feel lonely and atomized and depressed rather than galvanizing them for for the challenge at hand. And as you say, we see the same thing now in relation to net zero, uh, the notion that the world will come to an end if we don't slash our emissions by 2030 or 2050 or whenever it might be. Uh, even the heat wave is now being treated as a sign from Mother Earth that we are polluting too much and building too much and doing too much and we need to rein it all back in or else we'll be punished with fire and floods and all sorts of natural calamities so 
and that's one of the things that worries me most about the role played by the media in the current age, which is that they seem to take a certain amount of glee or at least get a sense of self-importance through going along with these projects of fear. We saw it in relation to the vote for Brexit as well. What do you think explains their attachment to the ideology of fear? And isn't that really a problematic way to present every issue as a kind of Armageddon in the making? Fear has been fetishized, hasn't it? And I think it's good for power and control. But let's be very honest about this. For the mainstream media, it's good for ratings. And they became addicted to those ratings and that power over the course of the pandemic. So if they think there's an opportunity for net zero or for Brexit or for, in this current situation, the heat wave to be the latest opportunity to fear the British public and for their power and their ratings to increase as a result, then they will go for it. And I mean, I've been looking at the headlines the, the past few days, Brendan, thousands will die, government officials yeah. warn. Well, how ridiculous. I mean, what ridiculous alarmism. <laughs> thousands die every summer because of the heat. And of course, we should be focusing on protecting the vulnerable and the elderly, but that is not the messaging from the government these days. The messaging from the government and from those in power and authorities and even the Met Office is that ordinary, healthy young people should not be leaving the house during during daytime hours. I mean, how on earth do they expect society to cope? What are we doing to the fundamentals of of Britain, if this is the way that the nanny state is going to baby and terrify the population at the same time. So look, I, I have a lot of sympathy for individuals, but I also think the time is now to man up, to do your own research, to fight back against the fear. And I am determined to call it out. And I think there are lots of heroic folk who do now. Yeah. And it's so important to do that. And even to do it with just basic facts. I mean, I was looking at the heatwave discussion, which has become completely hysterical, and the idea that we're all going to die in natural disasters. But what people leave out is that the number of human beings who die from natural catastrophes like floods or heatwaves or terrible rainfall and so on has absolutely plummeted over the past 100 years. In the early 20th century, around half a million people died every year as a result of those kinds of things. And in recent years, it's been more around the number of 13 or 14,000 people every year. So uh, Bjorn Lomborg, the sceptical environmentalist, says there's been a 96% drop in people dying in these kinds of natural problems. And all of that stuff very often gets left out in in the media discussion of these kinds of issues. And the media seems untrustworthy to lots of people. And I want to ask you about the impact that that has, because one of the things that does worry me about some of the discussion around the lockdowns and COVID-19 in general is that lots of people are now so distrustful of the media, understandably so, because they don't always give us the full story and they go for the clicks rather than for the reality and the truth. But some people have become so uh, distrusting that they don't trust anything. And we have seen the development of a conspiratorial way of thinking, the idea that COVID is not even real, it's kind of made up, and uh, the vaccine is is being used to control our minds and to turn us into sheep. I mean, there's a problem with that side of the discussion that's coming out in over the past year or so, isn't there? Because it's not what we need. What we need is more rational, clear thinking rather than just this alternative conspiracy for what, what's happening in society. 
Of course, I agree. But at the same time, I think there has to be a complete reinvention of the media for that to happen. I mean, look at yeah. some of the examples we've spoken about today. Uh, climate change. You and I would now be called climate change deniers. We're not. Yeah. We're simply bringing some context and some facts to the situation to try and dampen down hysteria. Likewise, with COVID, I throughout the lockdowns, I was described as a COVID denier, even though I had the virus myself, I never denied COVID. Now, uh, because I raise issues of COVID vaccine damage, uh, which again is a medical fact accepted by British authorities, I'm described as an anti-vaxxer, which is again, completely inaccurate, uh, factually untrue. But the problem is these labels are used against individual members of the public, Brendan, not just folk in the media. And so they lose faith because they look at their own lives and they know that they've had lots of vaccines in the past. They know that they've had COVID. They don't necessarily want the country to be shut down or their cars to be taken away as a result of climate change, but they do fundamentally believe in it, but they're being branded all of these labels. So of course they lose faith with the media. And I actually think the way that I present my show on GB News, for example, is far more honest than Mm. the rest of the mainstream media in the UK because people know what I think. They they know my political position. What you have with the BBC, with ITV News, with Sly News, um, with LBC now, which is a far-left radio station, really, you have journalists who pretend they don't have any political allegiances. And to me, it's that model that has to be blown up because we all know that they do. We all know that they do. So I think there is a very good reason why folk have lost trust with the mainstream media in the UK. And it's the mainstream media's responsibility to sort that out. And what I think GB News has done is provide an alternative where don't get me wrong, you are going to hear from all points of view and there are going to be lots of points of view that you disagree with. There's also going to be as many left-wing views as there are right-wing views. And I think even the labels of left and right have become so blurred over the past few years, especially with the likes of Brexit and COVID. So I just feel like the media are responsible for the predicament they now find themselves. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, I do want to ask you about GB News and its success, which has wonderfully annoyed the chattering classes. Uh, But before we get onto that, I just want to ask you about uh, another political issue, which is Boris Johnson. And this also pertains to the role of the media, because Boris has been ousted in a way that I think was problematic, the uh, anti-Boris backstabbers in the Tory party, I think, were being quite opportunistic, were being more self-serving rather than thinking about what is in the nation's interests. And more importantly, the small matter that 14 million people voted for a party that was led by Boris Johnson in December 2019. And then, of course, the media played, I think, a pretty key role in the ousting of Boris too, through whipping up those ridiculous scandals, Partygate and Pinchgate, and by making it clear that anyone who stood up against him would be treated as a hero and a wonderful person, finally bringing decency back into political life. As you look back on the past couple of weeks, what do you think about the 
Boris saga. And do you think people might now be thinking to themselves, it could have been a mistake to get rid of Boris? I think it's a disgrace what's happened. I think there's massive buyer's remorse within the Tory party. I say that, by the way, as someone who was highly critical of Boris Johnson over the course of those two years of lockdown and viciously opposed to his policies. But from the moment, Brendan, from the moment that Boris Johnson lifted those restrictions and stood up against the public health establishment and stood up against the BBC and the broadcasters who were desperate for COVID to continue. So I'm talking about December uh, 2021. From the moment he stood up to them and said, nope, the country is going to be open, they launched a vicious and unrelenting Westminster witch hunt, which made it virtually impossible for him to do his job. And my worry, Brendan, is that the media are now empowered because let's be honest, the BBC, ITV News and Sly News, they set the agenda. They still set the media agenda in this country in many ways, along with the newspapers. And the problem is they decided that no matter how small the scandal no matter how tenuous Boris Johnson's link to the scandal was, they would lead every single day on the fact that he needed to resign. And what it meant is there was paralysis in government because there were just so many scandals to deal with. And and the Tory MPs eventually decided it's impossible for (coughs) Boris to do his job. But I saw a very similar thing happen in Australia a few years ago. And what that resulted in, Brendan, was Mm -hmm. something like, you know, you, you had Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, uh, Turnbull, Abbott, Morrison, so six prime ministers in five years because the yeah. media realized that they had the power to depose a prime minister. And I worry that we are now in that territory here in the UK. And it is not the BBC's responsibility to depose Boris Johnson. How Woke One, the new spiked book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It is all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we as ordinary people can fight back. I cannot recommend it enough. Make sure you order your copy now. You can get it on Amazon or go to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I, I just want to ask you about the candidates themselves, because I would like to hear your view on, on the people who are standing to replace Boris Johnson, who I hope whoever it is will go to the public pretty swiftly because we voted for Boris Johnson to run the country, not Liz Truss or, or Rishi Sunak. But what's your take on the, on the various candidates? Uh, Liz Truss strikes me as arguably the most wooden politician of modern times. Rishi Sunak, I wouldn't trust as far as I could throw him. Kemi Badenoch, I think, is incredibly impressive. I think the most impressive of the bunch. What's your thoughts? If you had to pick one of them, who would you pick to to take over? I have been impressed with Liz Truss and Kemi Badenoch. I completely agree that Liz Truss is not the best presenter. Of of course not. But I don't care about that. I, I care about her policies. And I think she has the right policy approach. I think we've seen, though, already that the media would be out to destroy her from day one. And how will she overcome that? You know, how will she overcome that? Because they have tried to destroy her campaign from day one. I think the chances of fishy Rishi, as I now call him, being able to to, to re-secure the red wall 
after the fact that he backstabbed and betrayed Boris Johnson when he was meant to be getting the country out of this economic crisis. Chances of that are close to nil. And I don't trust him. I'm sorry, I, I do not trust him. I think Penny Mordaunt has huge questions to answer, especially when it comes to self-ID and the trans extremist debate. Uh, She has certainly signed up to the Stonewall narrative on that while pretending that she hasn't. So, look, I, I think it's hugely difficult. And I feel like the Tory party is in a real predicament. And personally, I think they needed to be bold block out the media, allow Boris Johnson to get through the summer away from the hysteria, focus on the cost of living crisis, focus on finally being victorious over the public health officials. And they didn't do that. They didn't, they didn't take the chance. And I think it could end up pretty terminal for the Tory party, at least at the next election, where it feels almost inevitable to me now that we're going to end up with some sort of coalition from hell with Labour Keir Starmer's Labour propped up by Sturgeon and the SNP demanding an, a second independence referendum as a cost to their support, with Ed Davey and the Lib Dems demanding proportional representation and votes for 16-year-olds as a cost to their support, and also Brendan the Green Party in there too, demanding an even more zealotry-like focus on the net zero agenda. And just imagine that combination for for this country. So it's not that I think the Tory party have been perfect, far from it. And I'm an independent thinker and I'm not a member of any political party, but I look at the alternative and I think, goodness me, goodness me. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of people are thinking the exact same. And your description of that coalition from hell, I think, is, is enough to to make anyone rethink what's been done to Boris and, and what might happen over the next few years in British politics. Okay, another issue I want to touch on is one of my favourite things that you write about is the royal family and Harry and Meghan. I think your writing on those two characters has been really, really good. And I wanted to ask you where you think that all stands now. I, I am a Republican. I'm going to put my cards on the table, but I'm a Republican who has a great deal of admiration, um, often to the confusion of some of my colleagues at Spike. I have a great deal of admiration for the Queen, um, and I wrote a tribute to her on the occasion of, of her recent Jubilee. And it's always struck me that Harry and Meghan and the role they play in the royal family has is really a sign of the times in terms of these kind of wannabe celebrities, clearly narcissists, playing a role that is quite damaging to an institution that means a lot to a lot of people. So where do you think the royal family stands vis-a-vis Harry and Meghan and their future in general in the next few years? Well, I'm a monarchist, but I come at this from the position that the royal family is in deep trouble. And as a journalist, I have always believed that the royal family should be questioned and critically analysed and reported on in the same way as other public institutions. And Brendan, the media in this country <laughs> don't really like to treat it that way. They, they <laughs> think that the royal family should have special status. And the way that I became so involved in the Harry and Meghan story is because I was uh, associate editor at The Sun at the time. And I knew I I was picking up more and more about what was going on behind the scenes. And I 
just couldn't understand, Brendan, why no one was writing about this, why there was almost like a conspiracy of silence amongst the royal rotor, as they're called. So they are the official reporters that work for each newspaper and report officially on the royal family. So they get access to the tours and they go to all of the visits, you know, when Camilla's opening a community centre and Nottingham, all of that sort of thing. And I was never part of that. So I thought, I'm going to come in and just do some reporting on this. And I have to give credit to to Tim Shipman, uh, the brilliant former political editor at the Sunday Times, who did a similar thing, came in on the Meghan and Harry story as an outsider and actually realized, wow, there's so much going on here. And for me, that culminated in me breaking the story of Megxit in January Mm -hmm. 2020, which obviously became a massive story and an era-defined story for the royal family. And I say the royal family is in trouble, not because I support Meghan and Harry, because you know that I don't, (laughs) but because they have now put the royal family in such a precarious position in the post- Elizabeth II world. Look at the tour, the disastrous tour of William and Kate to the Caribbean earlier this year. And again, this is something people don't really like to talk about, but I have written columns on it for the Mail Online. All of that criticism was the fault of Harry and Meghan, who have painted this picture of the royal family as a racist institution. Now, that isn't true, but clearly it is an institution that is steeped in colonial history. And these days, Brendan, in the post-BLM world, that makes you a target, doesn't it? That makes you a real target. And and the issue that Prince Charles and Prince William have, and clearly they are the two men who are going to shepherd the future of the royal family, is that, you know, that they're, they're pretty woke and they don't really <laughs> want to stand up for the traditions of the royal family in the same way that the Queen and Prince Philip wanted to. So, Look, I think Harry and Meghan are bitter and twisted, really destructive figures who are now out to destroy the royal family. And I mean, what absolute scumbag behavior. You know, Meghan was only ever in this for herself and Mm. for her own profile and, and to further her own career. And Harry always felt increasingly bitter about the way that as the spare rather than the heir, he wasn't at the heart of things. And so... Fundamentally, I think the royal family are going to have a very, very difficult few years. Again, that the media class and the establishment have very much embraced this concept of Queen Camilla. But amongst the public, there's a significant portion who will never forgive her for her behaviour towards Princess Diana. So fundamentally, and, I, and I'm often mocked for saying this, Brennan, but I think the Queen has to hang on, not just for a few more years. You know, we, we need the Queen to hang on for a couple more decades because the best possible thing for the royal family uh, would be for the throne to be passed from the Queen to William. But of course, uh, Charles is a very healthy man and he has always wanted to be king and and he has always been aware that he wasn't going to become king until he was very old and he sees it as his destiny. Will he be able to save the royal family, stop countries like Australia and New Zealand becoming republics? I I mean, look, it's going to be very rocky. And when you have Harry and Meghan sniping from the sidelines making false accusations about the royal family being racist. Mm. It's going to be a really 
really difficult time. And and I also, I, I think, look, the fact that even you, a Republican, are prepared to talk about the massive impact of the Queen. And I think the UK is still not prepared for what it's going to mean psychologically to us as a country, to our national spirit, when the Queen eventually does pass. I just think it's going to be a very difficult decade, probably, for the royal family. Uh, but, you know, the Queen's Queen Mother lived to 101, and the Queen has bounced back over the past few weeks and is determined to continue. I mean, the, you know, the, there's certainly no thought in her mind of an abdication. Yeah. Absolutely. And yes, I, I, I'm all in favour of having a proper public debate about whether we should have a monarchy or not. But the kind of shenanigans that have been taking place over the past few years, as you've described, particularly in relation to Harry and Meghan and their really vindictive campaign against the institution of the monarchy, against the queen as a person, and and this idea that they're pushing that this is a horrible racist institution, I think that is completely unwarranted, unwarranted and not something that even a Republican like me has any time for whatsoever. The thing is, they just don't treat people well either. I mean, there is so much evidence in so many different walks of life to just prove that Harry and Meghan are actually just deeply unpleasant individuals. And they're also individuals who will lie as well. But I think that's what makes them such a threat to to the monarchy because they will, I think they will almost stop at nothing before they see the destruction of the monarchy. Yeah. And I think Meghan is a, is a classic cry bully. So she plays the role of the victim very well and she uses all the correct language but behind the scenes she does seem to be a bit of a bully in character although that report about her behavior apparently won't be coming out anytime soon which is unless you can get hold of it dan and and reveal it to the world i think that's that's the that's the expose we need i mean i would love to be leaked that report the the thing that's so interesting about that whole situation brendan is that all of the staff members who worked for megan and harry are contained by these really draconian confidentiality agreements that you have to sign when you start working for the royal family. And lots of discussions have gone on amongst those staff members saying, well, hang on a moment. If Harry and Meghan write this book, write this tell-all book about the royal family and make all of these untrue claims about the family, surely that means that we can speak out about their behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. Good old double standards on the part of Harry and Meghan there. Okay, Dan, my my final question for you, which neatly ties up all the various things we've been talking about, is just about GB News. And uh, you play a key role at GB News. Your show is very successful. As you said earlier, GB News is, is over a year old now. And the GB News story is so fascinating to me because there was so much hysteria when GB News first came on the scene. Do you remember Stop Funding Hate, the kind of uh, hyper-sensorious elitist movement that tries to shut down media outlets it doesn't like? It was targeting advertisers saying, if you go near GB News, we will stop buying your products. There was this general sense that GB News had to be stopped because it was going to be this horrible far-right uh, platform that would give space to people who shouldn't be given space to. Of course, the truth is that GB News has turned out to be a perfectly normal, good 
news channel that lots of people appreciate because it's not like the other news channels. But what do you think that hysteria pointed to in relation to why people are so against having an alternative media voice? And doesn't it prove precisely why we need something like GB News? I think you're completely right. I think the mainstream broadcasters realise that we posed a significant threat to their very comfortable establishment setup that they've got going on, where they don't really challenge the narrative on anything. And they certainly don't challenge each other. And obviously in the US, where there are ideological news channels, it is a much tougher environment as a result of that. There's much more scrutiny. But I think GB News has changed the makeup of of the British media already. Mm. There has been so much reaction to us uh, internally at the, the BBC, Sly News, ITV News. They have had to really question what they do internally. They're trying to compete with their own opinionated shows, but it lacks the authenticity uh, that yeah. GB News has. I think the boycott from the advertisers and the advertising agencies is still incredibly damaging. And it's really anti-democratic, actually, because it shows that a few 20-something wokester, hipster advertising executives can effectively try to stop a commercial properly regulated, because you remember we are regulated by Ofcom News Channel, making money. And, and that is incredibly damaging given the vast amounts of money that, that are poured into the BBC and the huge institutional advantage that they have. And look, people were so desperate to write GB News off as a flop. And and to begin with, don't get me wrong, it was really difficult. We had some horrific early days and the technology was all new and the pressure was on. And Andrew Neil, who is a real establishment figure in himself, let's be honest, he, he couldn't deal with it and he quit. But the fact that now a year on we're regularly challenging the ratings of of the established news channels especially in prime time i i just think it's the huge achievement but we do need support we need people to spread the word and it's difficult we're up against a lot at gb news dan Whitton, thank you very much thank you so much Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.